if we were eating fast food or in a fast food way, we were not just eating food that was not good for us, but we were eating the values that came along with the food. So we were understanding that more is better, that time is money, that everything should be available whenever we want it, that it's okay to waste. There's always more where that came from, that everything should be uniform. So the coffee you get at Starbucks here should be exactly like the one you get in Paris. That, that it's okay to be a little dishonest. That was Alice Waters, cookbook author and chef owner of Chez Panisse, the restaurant in Berkeley, California, known throughout the world for its dedication to local and organic food, and seen by many as the first restaurant to offer what's become known as California cuisine. Alice is also a huge advocate for organic food in school lunches, and she's the creator of the Edible Schoolyard program, where children tend gardens as part of their curriculum and harvest food for their school kitchens. Before we jump back into the interview, I want to thank you for subscribing to our podcast and ask you to visit our website, realorganicproject.org. Become one of our thousand real fans to support our thousand certified real organic farms. Our movement is growing quickly, and we'd love to have your support. Now let's get back to the conversation between my co-director, Dave Chapman, and local food chef, Alice Waters. So Alice Waters, uh, thank you very much for spending the time with me. Uh, Alice is a well-known chef, author, food activist, and the founder of Chez Panisse, which I have had the great privilege and pleasure of eating at in Berkeley. So welcome, Alice. Thank you so much. I want to go back. We're going to talk about a lot of things that are, I know that you're working on right now, but I want to go back first to sort of the roots, the beginning and how in the world did you become a chef and, and a rather different kind of chef? I guess it really begins when I went to France the first time. I took a year off of school. I was at the University of California right at the moment of the free speech movement, right in 1964. So I was very taken in by by the vision of Mario Savio to change the world. And I was engaged on the fringes, but the civil rights movement as well at that time. And I just thought, I'm going to take my junior year off, and I'm going to go to France with a friend. And that's what happened. We arrived in Paris in 1965, when it was a very slow food nation, (laughs) if you will. I mean, it was so different from anything I had ever experienced in my life. And even from the first bowl of soup that 
we had in this little hotel. I just said, oh my goodness, I've never tasted anything like this. It was delicious. And it began that day. And walking around Paris, we were supposed to go, be going to school to learn French. But I never quite made it to the classes. <laughs> but I got schooled in a very different way. And I really fell in love with the beauty of the marketplaces. They were in every little part of Paris. And so people would go and buy things in the morning, and people who couldn't shop in the morning could come in the afternoon. And maybe there were a few different uh, vendors who came. And I never imagined, you know, eating these little restaurants, all these foods I had never tasted before. I think probably the wine helped. But it wasn't just that. It was the way that they served it and the, the kind of hospitality of a small restaurant. And then it just opened my eyes to the beauty all around me the music, the art. And when I came back from France, I said, I want to live like the French. So I started cooking. And I started cooking for my friends. But I couldn't find the ingredients. I couldn't yes. find that <laughs> taste. I went to the shops in Chinatown because they had ducks hanging and I thought, well, this is the real thing. But it wasn't. And I went to, you know, little vegetable shops. And again, there was something missing. And that was, I would later discover, that it was seasonality and ripeness, which, mm. which is about taste. Yeah, I think it's I think it's important to take note that the the restaurants you were eating in in Paris, I'm guessing, were not fancy places for wealthy people. This was just food. This was really just food for people in the neighborhood. And I remember they would have this kind of napkin holder that was right by the door for all the regulars. And they would put their napkins in the little pigeonholes and take them out when they came again. It was almost as if they were the supporters of that little place and of the family that ran it. But all around Paris, there were restaurants in every neighborhood like that. And farmer's markets were right there as well. Do you think if you went back to Paris today, the food would still taste the same? Well, I'm sad to say that it has changed dramatically. And I, I think that it had to do with the fact that the very big marketplace in Paris moved out to the airport. It was Léal, that big, huge open marketplace 
that really supplied all the little stores with food. And it also was a safety net for the general population that didn't have enough. They would come at the end of the market and take things that were left over. Mm. I discovered that later. But I only ate food when I was there that was from that region of northern France in and around Paris. That was the farthest that food came from was probably from Brittany, picking up oysters or picking up clams, where you could go and pick something up within a half day. But it it really seemed not just for students and student pricing. It felt like it was for the general public. I mean, yes, there were a couple of really fancy restaurants in Paris at that time. Uh, Maxime's and <laughs> the yeah. Tour d'Argent. There were places like that. But in general, people were eating at small neighborhood places. So a friend of mine who was from Spain said she went back to an island that she had loved when she was young because they had the best tomatoes in all of Spain. They were famous for their tomatoes. And she said when she went back six, eight, ten years ago, the tomatoes were no good because they were part of the common market. And, and so they were growing for export. They were growing essentially American varieties that were very tough and shipped well. And, you know, it's just so interesting that these, these regional food differences that are so, so precious really are being lost because it's not just the recipe. It's, it's the whole system, how the food is grown, how it's transported, how it's sold. Well, I really re realized that recently because we, um, went to do an event in Tennessee at Al Gore's ranch, the Climate Underground uh, event. And we were working with a group of chefs from Nashville and cooking a very simple school lunch for that event. And we were having beans and cornbread and greens. Well, there were five different kinds of beans that I had never seen before, ever. And I consider myself pretty sophisticated when it comes to, to particularly to beans, because we have many different varietals in California. But these are ones that I had never seen. And they were, in fact, ones that had a long history um, in Tennessee. And I was... I was so pleased that this kind of biodiversity probably exists everywhere in this country. We just have to find it again. We yeah. just, just like that particular tomato at that particular place. People ask me what my favorite tomato is, and I I say, well, I think it might be an early girl tomato planted on the east side of, of Napa Valley in late August. 
<laughs> you know, it's that specific for me. And I, I keep wondering why I can't get the tomatoes that I tasted in my childhood. Yeah. And it's because of the humidity of the New Jersey area that, that has them ripening in a very different way. And same tomatoes that I tasted in Michigan because of the humidity. But we're too dry in California to have that. We can get some little sun golds. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But that, I grew up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Uh, well, then you and, know. <laughs> yeah. Very, very, very hot, very humid. The soil was very fertile. The food was very good when I was growing up. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you, so you came back to America and you started to fall in love with cooking and trying to make the food that, that you fell in love with in Paris. And how did that morph into actually cooking food for other people for a living? Well, uh, the very quick story is that I was given a great cookbook of Elizabeth David, who had spent time in France, and she cooked very simply back in England. And I just loved her French-inspired recipes and her Provençal cooking book that reminded me of the climate in California. And I really studied that and started cooking for my friends. And they loved that. <laughs> and I kept doing it. I said, this is crazy. I can't make a living like this, <laughs> you know, spending all my money on food. And I was going to Montessori school at the same time I was teaching. Um, and I just was not a very good teacher, although I loved Montessori philosophy and believe in it so incredibly today. I, I think she is... Uh, really important at this moment in time, the ideas of learning by doing, and that our senses are our pathways into our mind. So we have to taste and touch, listen carefully, see, smell. And I, I just, yeah, I, I became a very ardent, follower. But when I left the Montessori school, I just thought, well, why don't I just open a neighborhood restaurant? And I had a couple of friends who said, great, we'll help. And we got together. And um, my friend Tom Letty, who uh, was running a uh, repertory theater in Berkeley, and he seemed to know everybody in town, and and he we'd drive around looking for a place that that had the right feeling, and I was pretty sure that I wanted to have a restaurant in the house because that would make people feel really at home, 
And I only wanted to serve one thing because I was afraid about wasting food. So there was only one menu when we started Shippanese. That was almost 50 years ago now. Yeah. So at that point, was that considered part of the counterculture? Was that, were we at that point in well, American I history? Consider, <laughs> I considered myself definitely part of the counterculture. And I was empowered by that. I just felt like I could do whatever I had a passion for doing. And if I were cooking and the food was good, that people would come. And that is, in fact, what happened. They wanted to support me in the work that I was doing. And immediately, uh, of course, we had all of Tom's friends <laughs> and uh, who were coming to Berkeley from around the world. And we had very good luck because we were near the University of California. So we had both students who could work in the restaurant, and we had people, they were pretty sophisticated about eating, and eating around, they understood what a little French restaurant might be like. Yes. Yes. And that, did that grow directly into Chez Panisse? That, that was Chez Panisse. That was Chez Panisse in that same location? In that, that it's in same now? location, never moved. Wow. wow, amazing. Yeah, I went for the first time a year ago, Christmas, and I, I took my, my two adult children, 30 years old, and my wife, and we, we all eat fairly differently. We have different tastes, so we, we ordered separately, but everybody was really impressed by the experience, by the, the eating that food. It, it really was uh, probably the best best uh, restaurant meal I've ever had in my life. So, <laughs> no, you don't have you know, to say that. that. <laughs> that's what I have to say about that. Uh, well, you know, I, was, I was really excited. Yeah, it was great. But it's always been a work in progress. You know, we're always learning about ingredients. And I think the fact that we only had one menu downstairs, that that pushed us to find ingredients all around us that, that were not only tasty, but were, were different from what was available in the marketplace. And, and, it gave the restaurant this kind of unique um, character that you might taste something there that you've never had before. Yeah. And we got the little young spring lamb from out in Amador County. And we had somebody that collected us mussels along the coastline. And so that was our foraging, and that was the beginning of the building of our network of farmers. And and those farmers, so let's talk about organic for a minute. Um, the organic movement was just beginning in America right then, and it really grew as a, a direct uh, alternative to what was happening in conventional agriculture. Could you talk about that a little bit? 
Well, there was definitely a kind of grow-your-own hippie movement that was going on in the 60s in and around the Bay Area. And uh, there was, um, you know, the ideas of microbiotic and uh, cooking and, and of course, um, diet for a small planet happened right there. And um, Silent Spring before that. And so we were trying to do something that was different. But when I came back from France, I just felt like that's that's not cuisine in my mind. I was... I was thinking about small plates of food and, and delicately served in courses and, you know, a balance. And it wasn't this big Chinese stew, or was it Japanese, or was it who knows what, you know. Uh, and so I pushed that a little aside. But I can't say that I wasn't you know, impressed by it politically and philosophically. It really interested me. So that was, that was somewhere happening. Um, and in the 70s was the beginning of the, the real farmer's market movement in, in the Bay Area. And we were, very lucky to find somebody who was passionate about farmers and and she worked at the restaurant Sibella Krauss and she ultimately started the Ferry Plaza Farmers Market in San Francisco which is thriving uh, well not these days sadly but it's an amazing place in San Francisco uh, to buy real food and so it was very important when we made that connection with the first farmers. And it happened around what we call the tasting of summer produce. And Sibella Krauss organized it. She had about five restaurateurs and five farmers together the first time. The second time, the next year, maybe 25 of each. And then we moved that event to the Oakland Museum. And there were probably 300 farmers and 300 restaurateurs who came to that event. And it was the first time I had tasted Bronx grapes and saw shell beans of all kinds. And I met Masamoto with his peaches, and uh, it was uh, like the real beginning of farm to table in California at that time. Uh, and of course, we made really close friends and started buying immediately from them at their moment in the season. So, like with peaches. We buy them, they're riper in, in the summer, in the valley, 
uh, to the beginning. And then as the summer goes on, we go further up the hillside. We get to Mas Masamoto's peaches out in the Central Valley. And it's a way that we can support all of these people at a little different moment. And sometimes we need lots of peaches from lots of different people to make a dessert or even to make salad. So ultimately, we got a farmer of our own. Yeah. And became kind of, again, directly buying from the farmers at the real cost of the food. They normally sell it wholesale or asked to sell it wholesale to somebody who delivers it. But we started buying directly from Bob and paying him the real cost. And that made all the difference to all of these people. And they all started wanting to give us, bring us food. Yeah. And that is a system that I'm really talking about for the public schools. Good. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what you're doing with the public schools. Well, I've been working on this for 25 years. It's called the Edible Schoolyard Project. And we began at one middle school in Berkeley with a thousand kids who spoke 22 different languages in their homes. And um, the principal had heard me making very uh, questioning his well, how do I say this in a really good way? I wondered what was going on in the public school systems in Berkeley. To look at this middle school that had graffiti on the walls and overgrown grass and barbed wire fences. And I just thought, what is this in the city that housed the University of California? What's going on in the public schools K through 12? And so the principal of the school calls me up, and he says, um, I'd like to talk to you. So I went, and I looked around the grounds with him, and I had the whole vision in one minute. I just said, oh, we could have a garden over in this abandoned lot, and we could have a kitchen classroom, not for teaching cooking per se or gardening but to teach math and science and history and language, but using food and the garden to engage the kids in the learning by doing, in the Montessori method. So I married Montessori with edible education. But I said, this isn't enough, Neil. We need to build a cafeteria that is capable of seating all of these thousand students in two seatings, maybe, and have them really sitting at the table and eating food together and make school lunch almost an academic subject. You could be studying the Middle East 
And then you could be having hummus and pita bread. And you could be having a tabbouleh salad. And you could be digesting the culture of that place. And he said to me, oh, Alice, uh, um, let's just do the garden. He said, I think it would be too frightening to talk about a free organic school lunch for every single child. And I said, Neil, it's all or nothing. And he said, Alice, it's all, but let's just wait for a moment. Just wait for a moment to talk about the lunch. Let's begin with the garden. And so I agreed. And so now we're talking about school lunch. And we've been talking about school lunch with the foundation that we started to finance the Edible Schoolyard Project. And then we thought to make proof of, of concept, it was very important that we did one in different places around the country. So we started the first one in L.A. to see what it was like in a big city. And then we went to New Orleans, and we started one in New Orleans. And then we went to New York to see what it was like in a big city in Brooklyn. And then we did upstate New York so we could have some cold weather. And guess what? It worked. It worked like a charm. I say that because the students became really engaged when they were out of their seats, when they were learning by doing, when they were smelling and tasting. And in a country like this one, where Maria Montessori would say that we were sensorily deprived by our being indoctrinated by a fast food culture, she would say that it was very important to engage the children when they were little, like she did in India, in the slums and in Naples, because they hadn't ever experienced the, the beauty, the beauty of nature, the beauty of, of a classroom. They had never um, been introduced to, to different tastes and sensations of touch. And so all of her materials were designed to inspire and wake up the kids the way that I was awakened in Paris. It was just yeah. that same thing. And so, so with the proof of concept in our minds, we really began building a network around the world. And we have that, maybe there are 7,000 schools around the world that are learning by doing, that have a garden classroom, maybe a kitchen classroom, maybe a whole cafeteria 
that's doing organic food. But they're all dedicated to stewardship, nourishment, and community. Okay, so that's that's so exciting. Let me ask you, because you mentioned it, and we promised we would talk about it. Let's talk about fast food culture. What does that mean to you? Well, I've been writing a manifesto and thinking about how we got to where we are now, where we are disconnected to nature, disconnected to this beautiful world that we could live in. And I understood deeply that if we were eating fast food or in a fast food way, we were not just eating food that was not good for us, but we were eating the values that came along with the food. So we were understanding that more is better, that time is money, that everything should be available whenever we want it, that it's okay to waste. There's always more where that came from, that everything should be uniform. So the coffee you get at Starbucks here should be exactly like the one you get in Paris that that it's okay to be a little dishonest, that advertising confers a kind of value to what we're buying. And I just started, there are many, many more values, but these are just the big ones. It's even okay to be a little greedy. You know, making money, bottom line, is where it's about. And it's okay to eat in your car. So it's that that we have deeply digested. Our plates are filled to the top. We want cheap food, cheapness. We're even willing to to get a little more soda, even though we don't want it at the movie theater, because it's bigger and you you get more for your money. You know, this, for another five cents, you get a really big gulp. And it's changed us. We're, we're into speed, fast, cheap, and easy, is the mantra, fast, cheap, and easy. And when, in fact, the things that give our value meaning, or mine, are slow and challenging and and not ever cheap. I think when something is cheap, that somebody is losing out somewhere, it can't be that cheap. It can't. It's cheaper to get that from China, but... How are the, their workers being paid if we can get it cheaper that way? And so it just opens up you, your mind to thinking about the consequences 
of all the actions you're taking. And at this moment in time, when we are self-isolating and we are dependent on people bringing us food, we are really in danger of losing our farm-to-table farmers and ranchers. And it's why we need to to support the farmers' markets that are open and to buy our food from those people who are taking care of the land for the future. Now, of course... I am... Go ahead. I am very moved by the image that you have come up with that that when we are eating a fast food diet, we are eating the values of fast food, the fast food culture, that we're eating values, that we're changed by eating those. And I think it's a powerful idea, and I think it's true. I'm still trying to unpack it. But it's like you, you get into it like with McDonald's. They're using all the gimmicks to get the kids, the little kids, addicted. I mean, it's a lot about salt and sugar, too, and really cheap ingredients, so industrially produced ingredients. So it's, it's way more... Um, uh, contrived and and really looking in like Eric Schlosser, Schlosser sorry, uh, talked about it in his Fast Food Nation book when he talked about how they were devising the taste artificially to put in the food so that you'd be drawn to it in that particular way. Well, our children are the least suspecting, and that kind of food is available everywhere, every corner store, even at a hardware store, you can find candy at the counter. And so you're, you're tempted at all times. And the fact that your life is speeded up, and you have to get more done in less time. And so you need to eat on the run. You need to eat in the car. You need to have things ready. So the whole family meal I've heard that 85% of the kids in this country don't have one meal with their families anymore. And for us as children, we had to come to the dinner table. And it was the meal where we, we talked about what happened at school. What happened? Then the TV dinners came in in the 50s. People watching television with a TV tray and eating a frozen meal. And it's just gone on from there. But we can just have fast food delivered any time of day or night we want it. Just use the app. But it is so different than cooking your own food, which has always been the pleasure of my everyday life. I mean, sometimes I do it very, very quickly in the morning. And I put my tortilla on the fire and I spread it with something and eat it right there. But I love the relaxation that a washing and drying of salad can bring. 
the making of an aioli, the, the rhythm of cooking um, really calms me down. And the pleasure that I get from offering that food to other people <laughs> and for them to like it and yeah. to engage children in cooking. They're so open. They love to whisk. They love to get near to a fire and be asked to help with something, turn over the egg in the frying pan, to lift this out, mm-hmm. to be part of even thinking about what should we cook tonight. And that is probably the real message that I got from 25 years of the Edible Schoolyard Project in Berkeley. Because I would watch these kids grow up from little sixth graders to going into high school. And how confident they were at the end of three years. They just could talk right straight to you like I am now and say, I know what regenerative organic compost is. I know how to put it on the ground. I know that it's important to the nutrition of our bodies. I know that the vegetables taste so good when they're cooked, grown that way. And I feel like they could all give a TED talk. <laughs> I mean, it's yes. that deep. I know they will take care of themselves and I know they'll take care of the land. And I, I know it's happening in some dimension in all of these schools we have been connected to. But I, have a great belief in public education. I always have. And I guess it began when I went to Berkeley to the University of California, a land-grant university that was number one in the world when I went, number one. (laughs) And I've watched how things have changed over these years. And I just know that in, I mean, they began serving, you know, fast food and and taking money from vendors who wanted their food and drink to be given to students at that time so that they would be buying it for the rest of their lives. They know what a Pepsi can do. And, and so they would give the university money every year to have that concession. And the university um, is so needy of money, all universities are, that they couldn't resist that. But it changed the the student body even by taking people who wanted to pay money who were out of state, when in fact the University of California was meant to educate the students of the state of California. And it was 
meant to be an economic engine to the state, both in terms of brilliance of the students and also I'm just thinking in terms of the economy of where you're buying your food. What a beautiful opportunity it would be for the University of California to buy all of its food from the state of California. Yeah. You know, the, the Real Organic Project began, I guess, as a reaction to things that have been happening with the USDA Organic Program because we, many farmers, many, many pioneering farmers, felt that the very precious thing that we were trying to foster was being colonized by corporations. Exactly. And, uh, exactly. you know, what was in, intended to be an alternative is just becoming uh, another market segment for these large corporations. They actually don't care. Organic, conventional, yeah, we, we own it all. It all. Yeah, they do. So I'm, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's why we need that economic engine of the public school system. I mean, K through yeah. 12 and, and college as well. But for the University of California, which has a necklace of campuses throughout the states, that they could really begin to show their buying power and, and really change the farming practices in the state of California. They could bring in new farmers. They could decentralize the big, the big companies who are now really having a hard time selling their almonds to China. Let me tell you, uh, it's, it's no longer a really viable market. I have to sell them for less money than they could get if there were a real buyer in the state. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm very um, also inspired by the, the mayor of Stockton, Michael Tubbs. And he uh, was at an event for Forbes 400, and I was being given an award, and I asked them if I could please serve a school lunch for the event. And I did. I did that Middle Eastern school lunch with the hummus and the warm pita bread. And when it was finished, he came over to me and he said, I want you to do this in all 55 schools in the city of Stockton. And he was standing next to a philanthropist who said, I'll help you. And that began about eight months ago. And it's been so gratifying to see somebody who's willing to put a stake in the ground, who's willing to say that regenerative organic food is about health of the land, it's addressing climate, it's addressing the health of our students, it's a way we can support the economy all around Stockton. I mean, essentially, it's, it's bringing back his city. Because think of all of the other foods that a university or a school system can buy. 
whether it's tortillas or bread, we need to have people making these, these ingredients with integrity and using the local corn that is organic. And wow, I mean, it just goes on to imagine. It goes on and on. It goes so on and on. So you're proposing that just as eating fast food actually is a way of digesting and being transformed into becoming part of a fast food culture, so eating real food, and, and I will go so far as to say regenerative organic food grown by farmers with, with tender loving care, also is a way of transforming a culture because you're eating that and being changed by it. That, exactly. And the great part is that this is not hard to do. Now, some people say it's too expensive. We can't do that. But we've been making school lunches that fit our criteria of nutritious and, and local and totally organic and food the kids like and food that's easy to make. And we fit into or go under the USDA guidelines. Meat is the biggest cost, but if we can use it as a condiment and not as the main thing, yeah. Then, we're, then it's great, but and it's learning how to cook. So, I mean, I feel like it's a really a delicious revolution that we are involved in. This is something hopeful. We can feel like we're doing something important to address climate change by making compost in our backyards, by planting a victory garden, by being part of a community garden. But if we have those buyers, the public school system, can you imagine how much food they have to buy every year? And if we used it in this incredibly positive way, it would, I think, teach our children the values that they're going to need to live on this planet together. Uh, I, I love your delicious revolution. So, uh, you know, I think uh, one of the things that, that I personally struggle with is sometimes I do get stuck in anger because I get so frustrated by the forces that we contend with they're so dishonest and and they're very good at what they do they're very good at at making up these stories <laughs> and uh you know they love to say no no we're with him and i'm like no you aren't you're not with me so no but but that's why uh you know our money can really uh, convince people initially to do the right thing because we're paying them the real cost of their work. So it's making that farmer and rancher and fisherman really happy uh, to be treated with respect. And at the same time, it's, it's 
such an economic force. I mean, if we had all the schools in this country, if we had all the universities using that money that they spend right now in fast food nation, if that were just put into slow food, it could be extraordinary because it's, it's like, it's, it's something that just by the seasonal determination, you, you only allow yourself to eat ripe food. Now that's yeah. something very important in this delicious revolution because you don't want to eat second rate fruits and vegetables all year long. You want to have that New Jersey tomato in August and you want to get all the tomatoes you can have then. And when it's gone, it's gone. Maybe you can the best of them for the winter so you can have a taste of something else, but something delicious. We have to think about the pantry. We have to store our fruits and vegetables again, like we have done. I'm, I'm starting a, an institute of edible education at the University of California at Davis. And I'm very excited about it. It's not built yet, but I'm going to build it with a beautiful cellar, a brick arch cellar. And I'm going to be able to use that as a cool place for storing fruits and keeping apples and pears and, and, uh, and things that will keep me us through the winter. I mean, Chez Panisse doesn't have a tomato outside of three months. And they're over, they're over. They just are. So. You know, it strikes me that uh, bonus points for um, your plan for, for bringing real food to schools is that we also get to start to deal with obesity and oh. malnourished obesity, which is a, a, a uniquely, has been a u uniquely American phenomenon, yes. although it's spreading that's, to the rest of the world. Well, that's We're because exporting it. Ex we're exporting fast food. Yeah. I mean, McDonald's has the greatest number of fast food restaurants per capita in France. In France. They hide them. I actually them. thought they had resisted McDonald's oh, no. in France. Nobody <laughs> can resist. Maybe a small town near the headquarters of slow food in Italy. Um, yeah. That's, uh, they've driven them out. But it's... It's something that, again, no one can resist the cheapness of it. But I know for a fact in traditional cultures around the world, and when I look for foods for this cookbook that it's going to have international recipes, I always find that the easiest to make, the most nutritious, and most affordable foods are the ones that people have been cooking forever and that children love. 
the spices of them. I mean, I'm surprised by that just in the Edible Schoolyard Project, that here these are, these teenagers, and they get to spice the food to their own liking. Well, it's almost as if they've never had tasty food before. You know, it's like our bland diet is, um, it's just forced us to being picky about what we eat, when in fact, these kids are so open when, when they learn about picking up a, a vegetable sushi with a chopstick, you know, and that they made themselves, and they dip it in the sauce that's spicy that they made themselves. It's something incredibly empowering. And I think when you're not all the time at the mercy of that fast food on every street corner, when, when you, when you can step back, it's so gratifying that you know how to feed yourself well and simply and really affordably. Yeah. I don't think I could live with, without tortillas. Um, and organic tortillas cost more. But you don't need more than one or two. And that makes them incredibly affordable. And I think about a chicken that may cost $28 for an organic chicken. And I tell this story in my manifesto that I think I can make three meals uh, with an organic chicken for my family yeah. if I have different things that are going with a dinner and with a lunch and a chicken salad and making a stock with the bones. Well, Jose Andres, the chef, he says he can make six meals. Now, we, we need to learn to cook. We need to use all the ends of that rainbow chard and throw them in with the rest of the chard. We have to make the dishes beautiful. And that's part of what we're teaching in the Edible Schoolyard Project, that, that beauty is a language of care. So when you even put a few flowers on a table... The child is saying, those are for me. <laughs> you put those for me, <laughs> you know, or just in terms of offering food as a way to, to tell other people that, that you really do care about them. And you're glad that they came to the restaurant, that maybe they get a little extra something or a second portion, because that's what the restaurant business is about. And that's why we're, it's so hard for us to be out of work right now, because we all are commiserating with each other, and, and we all feel the need to, to give. And... And many, many 
restaurants are helping to give children school lunches and we're we're trying our best to to keep our farmers alive and it's very difficult without being right next to them you know dan barber i have to say this as a a little plug for our farmers but he's organized uh, uh, a group uh, for students and for young people, I think older people too, to come harvest the crop. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's uh, a really great program uh, uh, that, that is... This uh, is at Stone Barns? Yeah, Stone Barns, but, yeah. but it started out of Stone Barns, but it's yeah. like the wolfing project where you get room and board and you can yeah. go and help um, harvest uh, around the world who can do that. And I think it's such a great way to get reconnected to, to real food is to, to go out there and really be a help. And right now, there are a lot of people that do kind of picking of second harvest gleaning so that they can give the food um, to the homeless centers. They're doing that in Washington, D.C., D.C. Central Kitchen and Martha's Table. But there are so many organizations that, that we could connect with real food, with organic, regenerative food. And, of course, take all of our compost back to the farm, which we've been doing for years and years with Bob Kennard. Well, Alice Waters, I, I have to thank you. I, I think that even though Chez Panisse is closed down, you're still doing your work and uh, you're, you're spreading the good word. I, these ideas are so important. We, you know, we need to somehow figure out how to win this delicious revolution. <laughs> and uh, I like it. I like it very much. So thank you for talking to me today. Well, I've been delighted uh, to be here. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea of us all collaborating together is very important. And if we decided on a very big mission, I'm sure we could do it. So stay tuned around the University of California. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you like what you heard and will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you found us. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to today's conversation, can be found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 13. Please join us next time for an interview with journalist Mark Schatzker. He's the author of The Dorito Effect, It's a riveting conversation about how flavor has replaced nutrition to the detriment of our health, and it leads to mass confusion in both our mouths and in our marketplaces. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms.